Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. a great week. It's Mickey here, you're listening to Wikipedia and today on the podcast I have a returning guest, Dr. Cliff Harvey, who as you know is one of my great mates, uh, deep thinker, experienced nutritionist, naturopath and today on the podcast we talk about, we sort of take a bit of a big picture view on health in New Zealand, in society, in communities, We cover a lot of the big picture stuff, which often is sort of missed when we talk about people's diets, their health, and what they can do to help optimize that. So it was a really great conversation, and I'm really stoked to be able to bring it to you in that Cliff was so generous with his time in chatting to me. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Cliff, Cliff Harvey, PhD, is New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet in a healthy population. But of course, as evidenced by our conversation today, he is so much more than that. He has been helping people to live happier, healthier lives and to perform better since starting in clinical practice back in the late 90s. And over this time, he has been privileged to work with many Olympians, professional athletes, Commonwealth athletes and other high performing people. And he's also helped many people overcome the impact and effect of chronic and debilitating health conditions. Along the way, he has founded or co-founded many successful businesses in the health, fitness and wellness space, including the Nutrition Store Online, where if you use my name, you can get 10% of anything you order there. It is one of my favorite uh, places to purchase things. And the Holistic Performance Institute, which is New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching, and performance that has many of the world experts teaching on the course. So students are learning from the best. And as an aside, I have helped co-create the female nutrition course on that um, site, which is an awesome course for anyone wanting to know a little bit more in that space. So Cliff has over 20 years experience as a strength and nutrition coach. He has authored many books. And in addition to his PhD research, he's a registered clinical nutritionist, qualified naturopath, and holds a diploma in fitness training and health coaching in patient care. You can find Cliff over at www.cliffharvey.com and you can find the nutrition store and the Holistic Performance Nutrition in the show notes. So we'll put links in there as well. And before we kick the interview off, just like to remind you that a great way to support the podcast is to leave a review. The more reviews that are there, the more that this podcast will reach other people. So if you enjoy it and feel like others could really benefit from learning from the people that I interview, such as Cliff, then please, that would be amazing to be able to do that. And also, if you're interested in further support, absolutely sign up to the recipe portal access. That's 12 bucks a month, and you get access to my recipe portal, which holds over 600 different recipes that are frequently updated on a weekly basis. You get access to the private Facebook group, Mickey Willardin Real Food Nutrition, where I do 
Facebook Lives every couple of weeks. I'm in there answering your questions and you also get the opportunity to ask me your personal nutrition questions through our online platform, which is where you create your account to get access to all the other information. And you get a weekly email from me as well, which sort of details the things that I'm interested in and exploring on a research and practical perspective. As an example, this week and the week before, I've given a bit of a debrief on what reverse dieting is and how to go about setting that up. So if things in the nutrition and health space interest you, then this is a great way for you to further your learning more. For now though, hopefully you really enjoy this conversation that I had with Dr. Cliff Harvey. Morena Cliff, how are you? How are you, Dr. Harvey? Dr. Harvey, I never actually see that much. Does anyone call you Dr. Harvey? Funnily enough, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite cool. I've got um, a few students overseas, and you find in some countries they're very polite and courteous, and so it's always Dr. Harvey, and I eventually have to say, dude, just call me Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> How are you this morning? Pretty good. Just, you know, locking down, living life, trying to, trying to stay one step ahead or one step ahead. Pretty much the usual. (laughs) Oh, I like it. Yeah. So we are in, we're into our fourth week of level four. No, sorry, I'm fifth week of level four, which is the longest that we've spent in level four out of all of our lockdowns, actually. Mm, I believe that the first time we were down for four weeks. And right. this is, you know, they're, they're doing the big sort of, the big haul to hopefully what will just be five weeks. I think so. I think there'll be a revolt if they go longer. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. Imagine being in Melbourne, though. I think they've been locked down for, for like a gazillion days. Yeah, I've got colleagues across there. I think they're in sort of week 14 or something now. Although I did see someone I follow on Insta sort of pop into a shop. So I think that their lockdown is slightly different to ours. Yeah, and I think it depends on, I mean, it obviously differs state to state and there's, uh, it mm. seems to differ within local board areas as well. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's probably a little bit different, but still, you know, a few of the people I deal with over there, have, they're, they're getting, I mean, it's just, it's difficult, right? At, at that length, um, even if you cope with it relatively well or you work from home or whatever it happens to be, there there is that underlying tension, I think, there. You know, it's little things. We've we've noticed it a lot this time around of being that little bit more reluctant to go out for a walk because there's lots of people around, you know, lots of people walking, lots of runners, you know, coming really close to you and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. um irrespective of where people sit on their sort of belief or disbelief of the whole either COVID situation or what our strategy should be, um, there's still going to be impact. Yeah, it's interesting, eh? Like I've definitely noticed way more people around and way more cars on the road this time compared to last lockdown, last level four lockdown at least. And, uh, And people's tolerance for breaking bubbles and stuff tends to be a little bit, they seem to be a little bit more lax than maybe what they were last time. I don't know. Maybe it it is just due to that fatigue that people are feeling for headed back into lockdown. It wasn't just a short, sharp one. You know, this is like five weeks now, which is considerable length of time, really. It's it's a long time. 
you know i was you, you sort of look, put that in the perspective of your business year it's it's quite a lot you mm. know we, we're at 10 percent of our year has now been locked down and you know while people will say that's not that much on a economic scale i think that's that's a huge amount which is why you know i i wonder i'm not anti-lockdowns by any means mm. uh but i do wonder if there does need to be a little bit more evaluation of the the meaningfulness of effect between say a level three and a level four mm. because level three is basically the same right it's it's lockdown with takeaways and more people are able to work yes and and level two is um the lamest of all levels whereby you can go out if you like but one of the reasons you go out is for atmosphere and socialization and, and things like that. But if you're going out to a restaurant and you there are only 40 other people allowed in the room with you and, and you can't really sort of get that interaction that you want, like, do you really want to go out or is this a, just a sort of in-your-face reminder that things aren't normal and things are a long way off normal is yeah. how I'm feeling about lockdown. It's, it's a strange feeling because it's been a, a quite a long time now you know we've been mm. you know under the specter of covid for well over a year and it doesn't really seem like things are going to be changing anytime soon and so this you know i know people it's become tried and people talk about the new norm but it, it feels like this is the new norm and it's a very strange time in history <laughs> It is, eh? Like we were, we, so we're getting really into watching like YouTube um, docs on ultra runs and ultra runners. And there's this guy that we follow, Jeff Palliter, and he's in, he's a Canadian and he's been running all the trails in and around Canada over the last couple of years. And his most recent event actually was the Quebec 100 miler race. And um, it's just so interesting to have a look at what is in fact they're headed over like all of these people around yet everyone's got masks on inside which is sort of different from what we've known here in New Zealand until probably now um and it's just sort of the, the way of life and I'm seeing people post pictures of their sort of back to school pictures with their kids and their kids have masks on and their back to school pictures and I'm like this is so strange that from here on in is this what it's going to be like yeah and I'm, I'm sure at some point it won't be but where we draw the line and, and stop having those restrictions I don't know you know it's not my mm. area but um, there, there are far smarter people discussing it and debating it you know and, and entertaining lots of different opinions on that because uh, I think the longer it goes on, the more we need to consider that the idea that, and this is going to be really unpalatable for people, I think, but the idea that any death or any severe illness is too much, that's that's extremely naive. You know, in no other area of life do we have that kind of mentality where there there is no appreciation of the risks versus benefits of of something. You know, and in that respect, I'm really talking about obviously lockdowns because, like I say, I'm I'm in favour of lockdowns if they can achieve the stated goal within a time that doesn't then unduly affect people's health or happiness in a more severe way. Mm. Um, you know, and in the same way, I'm not a COVID denier. I'm pro vaccination, all of those things. Uh, but we need to consider that there, there will be impact on the economy that will affect people's health and happiness. And so, where are we? 
going to draw the line and where are we going to draw a distinction between those two things? You know, what is the real harms of COVID versus the harms of extended lockdown and economic decline? Um, mm. But also more than that, I think probably within more within our realm of expertise, because that's just stuff that I'm sort of seeing and I'm not an expert in. I'll, I'll sort of take the advice of, of other experts. But in an area that's more sort of within our realm, I think th- there are a lot of elephants in the room. You know, I think that we're we're not necessarily we're not necessarily discussing adequately yet the impacts of metabolic health on disease outcomes. We're not looking at overall health as being a real priority. It's I don't believe it is a priority in this country. I don't believe it's a priority really in in many countries, to be honest. Mm. And we're not looking at societal effectors of health and happiness in the the most pragmatic way you know it's always cast within the current paradigm which is predicated on progress growth um you know having the existing economic capitalist model be sustained and everything else is subservient to that but i would say that the model should not dictate what is best for people's health and happiness people people's health and happiness should dictate the model that we use and i think that's yeah. that's where we really need to to begin to have a revision of the the way we approach how we set up structures for society for health systems for our economic system the the whole lot uh, because that's what really plays into people getting the best outcomes and i, I don't believe people are getting good outcomes because people are getting more unhealthy mm. you know in a chronic disease sense mm-hmm. and where um probably on balance becoming less happy over time as well yeah you know you raise some really good points and and i think i've touched on it briefly with a few people in terms of metabolic health so um i've chatted to paul lawson and dr phil maffetone on their paper around kind of metabolic health and COVID-19. Um, I've again actually had conversations with both Paul and Phil in separate episodes, one that was just published today and in around updated thoughts on it. Cool. And the, you know, the real challenge as I see it, and this is what this is, eh? So you and I, we, we just thought we'd pop on a podcast and chat about some things which, which are sort of on top of our minds probably right now. And talking about metabolic health can be seen as almost being in a privileged position. And this is where I absolutely agree with you that it's not a not necessarily an individual responsibility problem. It's actually the societal model. You know, like we are very privileged that we have jobs and lives that are absolutely impacted by lockdowns and COVID and whatnot, but we can continue to go on and do what we do in everyday life. Whereas there are other people that that can't. And you know, we live in houses which have enough space for us to move around in and spend time alone, but time with family rather than other families where there might be 12 people in a three bedroom house. We talk about vitamin D and talk about um, better quality diets as, as being, some, you know, two things which can help improve metabolic health outcomes and thus help potentially um, change that risk around susceptibility and severity of COVID-19. But we're able to, you know, make decisions around that where other people aren't able to. So, you know, it is a privilege to be able to talk about metabolic health, but it doesn't mean that nothing can be done about it, which is sometimes what I hear people talk about. Yeah. And I think, 
one of the factors that's playing into that is the idea nowadays that if I think this is exactly what you're saying, you know, I'm sort of sort of saying it in a different way, that if you bring attention to something like metabolic health, uh, which obviously includes some anthropometric markers, mm. that it's it's basically a way to to victim blame or to fat shame or to sort of distract from the what people see as being the bigger issue, which is, you know, that COVID is a serious thing. Mm. Now, I don't think any of that's necessarily correct because, as you say, we're, we're, no one who is approaching this pragmatically is saying that, you know, because someone is overweight, it's their fault that they have a, a higher likelihood of getting more severe symptoms of COVID or they have a higher likelihood of, of death per se. It's really that we need to address the underlying social structures that mm. predispose us to those problems because you know i would say that in in most cases it's not it's not really reliant on the individual it is reliant on the the food and lifestyle environment because we all live within that environment but some of us usually not because of willpower or determination or any of those things people talk about we just happen to not have those same proclivities uh, we maybe yeah. don't have the genetic proclivity towards something, or we've been lucky enough to, to have other advantages. And some of those you sort of talked about, you know, societal advantages, or it, it could be, you know, uh, demographic advantages. I have demographic mm -hmm. advantage in being a middle-aged white man. Mm. And I'm, I'm very aware of that, right? But that doesn't change the fact that there are risk factors involved with illness. We need to discuss those pragmatically, and we really need to, I think, start to get to the nitty-gritty of how we can change those things. And that's the thing, right? Obviously, anything to do with health and um, society and policy, is it's that's the long game. You play the long game when you make changes to, to things which affect public health, yep. which is, I think, one of the reasons why no one looks at it as an attractive option, you know? So... And this has long been the problem with public health. You know, if you think of changes to food policy, changes to like smoking legislation, changes to infrastructure, city infrastructure and things like that, like what we're thinking of, okay, if we make this change now, that's going to affect the outcome in 20 years time. Exactly. So that's why it's almost never sort of, it, it's never on the forefront of uh, the powers that be in terms of thinking around those different factors like because we have heard nothing from the government in terms of health at all at all in the last 18 months despite numerous studies highlighted the importance of metabolic health vitamin d status obesity and things like that and the impact that that has on overall outcomes there's, there's been nothing at that higher level yeah i completely agree and you, you've hit the nail on the head with you know that the long-term view is not congruent with election cycles i think that's one mm. of the big problems mm. but i think it's also very much a human trait that we we don't think bad things will happen yeah. you know and, and that I, I find that really interesting because in some respects we do you know where it plays into the military industrial complex and you know you sound like a conspiracy theorist when you start talking about that but <laughs> you know who was the first person to really bring that to light it was um Eisenhower, I believe, in his uh, in his speech when he left office, 
brought attention to the growing military-industrial complex. And I think that is a big impactor of how we view things in the world and how we spend money on a governmental level. Now, I know that probably seems a little bit weird to go into that area, but what I'm doing is drawing the analogy here that we, even in a country like New Zealand where we don't spend a lot on our military, we still Mm. spend a lot. You know, proportionately it's not a lot, but we still spend a lot. And that's under the contingency that there might be a problem. Someone might invade us Mm. or we might need to contribute to our allies, something like that. But it seems like we don't put the same contingency spending into health. Because if we did, we would have more hospital latency. You know, we'd have more hospital capacity and we'd be far better able to deal with pandemics in the future. Now, Mm. what I've heard in, in response to that type of idea is that, well, we couldn't see this coming. And to those people who say that, I'd say that's complete rubbish. We could see this coming because we had SARS-1 just a few years back. We had MERS. You know, we've had influenza pandemics. And we've known for, what, 100 years that there are likely to be extreme, severe, and potentially world-changing pandemic events. We've just been pretty lucky that the ones that have come up recently have not had the the global impact that COVID-19 has had. And so... We knew it was coming, but we didn't prepare adequately. And I think that's what yeah. we really need to look at for the future is is changing the structures so that we do have that latency. You know, we need to be prepared to take some small losses for several years in order to avoid the big losses that we're seeing now. You know, we're going into debt, I think, in New Zealand to the tune of about $80 million a day. Mm. Now, you look at how much does a hospital cost? I don't know, but I imagine it would be a lot, maybe 500 million. Mm -hmm. That's a week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's a week of loss. Yeah. 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 Isn't that crazy? And it's so, you know, I think about the decisions that government makes and it's not particularly this government. This is historically speaking. Like if I think in nutrition, which is where both you and I are experts in, there hasn't been a nutrition. Well, we don't know what New Zealanders are eating. Basically, we we haven't known at that population level as well as you can know from a population survey uh, since 2008, 2009. So it has been, you know, 13 years since there's been any money put into looking at some of these factors which impact on metabolic health and really important factors as well, because you can't change what you don't measure. How, how are any decisions going to be made with regards to any nutrition policy if there's no data to sub- inform any of those changes? Exactly. And I, I, I remember you bringing up a few weeks back, you know, there, there was a, um, a lecturer who was, I don't think it was all bad, but was sort of trumpeting the party line that if you just eat a good diet, you don't need to supplement. Mm. And the thing is, I think we'd all agree that that's on balance probably correct, you know, with maybe some some variations there. Maybe it's difficult to get enough vitamin D, especially during winter, all those types of things. So there is a little bit of nuance within that. But I think most of us would agree that, sure, if you eat a really good diet, you probably don't need to supplement. And if you do, you need to supplement bugger all. However, we know that most people aren't eating a good diet. Many, many people in New Zealand are not getting all that they require from diet alone. And so the bigger question is how do we address that? Now, supplements might be 
part of the answer and to just sort of write them off because if only people did this, then we wouldn't need that it is a, a very, I think, naive. I, I think it's privileged and I think it, it doesn't help to address the problem in the most comprehensive way. Of course, we want people eating better, but we also need to recognize that there are going to be things that people can do to help with their nutrition. Now, in the absence of good data, we don't really know. And I think that just leads to, to people being unaware of the impacts of nutrition on health because we don't have up-to-date data. But, you know, from that 2008-2009 uh, food and nutrition survey in New Zealand, we do know that a, a fairly significant proportion of the New Zealand public are not getting enough of things like vitamin A, several of the B vitamins, which is surprising because they should be ubiquitous in the diet. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, vitamin D. Uh, mm -hmm. magnesium and zinc, you know, 45% of guys don't get enough zinc in the diet. Now, yeah. when people talk about nutritional cofactors for immunity and they say that, you know, there are no cures for COVID, of course, I agree with that. However, we can't ignore the impact of those very important nutrients for immune status like vitamin A, D, zinc in the control of something like COVID. You know, the healthier you are and the more resilient you are in terms of your overall health and immune status, the better, the better a position you're going to be in. And to ignore that is is not only cavalier, I think it's um, incredibly ignorant for people to ignore that. It's interesting, Cliff, because I know, of course, what you were referring to was that Seven Sharp interview, I believe. And I do, I do wonder whether part of the motivation to say that you can get everything from diet comes from the place that supplements cost money and there's a large portion of the population who could not afford to buy supplements and actually it makes no sense to buy supplements if for example their diet isn't you know they're not getting everything that they sort of need from their diet so in some part I feel like it, it's a hard place to be because you wouldn't want to be on television going yeah, actually you know what the New Zealand diet isn't great people could do with some supplements and these are the reasons why because almost that would come across as an elitist position privileged position as well yeah. it did make me laugh thinking with the the reference to the worried well because you know if again we don't have a have great New Zealand sort of population data but we know that in the states for example 88 percent of the population are not well so what we consider as healthy I think is a super interesting question as well because it's almost like the people who are worried well in fact what they're referring to are people who have money to buy supplements and they just assume because they have money that their metabolic health is actually fine whereas New Zealand is no different from a lot of other western nations so that supposition is incorrect as well. Yeah I agree and you know I think we need to look at what well really means you know mm. does, does well mean the absence of diabetes or does well mean you know the absence of diabetes and metabolic syndrome and predisposing factors that are going to contribute to metabolic disorder and cardiovascular disease later in life or are we mm. also going to consider within that the high and increasing prevalence of mental health challenges yeah because, you know, while that gets a lot of attention nowadays, I don't think we necessarily draw, we don't draw the same parallels as we do with what we'd consider just purely physiological disorders, uh, you know, between those and nutrition. 
Yep. All, all lifestyle, but of course they're they're all part of the same complex. Mm. You know, we we can't separate the mind, the body. You know, which is why I typically refer to those things as psycho neurophysiological. Um, we also can't separate them from our our social environment, and so w- when we're addressing topics like this, it, it does become very complex. And I can understand why there's not a a lot of appetite to approach it because it's difficult, and it probably involves a big restructuring of how how we live, you know, mm. how we fund things, but also more importantly, our objectives not just personally, but our objectives societally. You know, mm. I, I, I truly don't believe that we can continue with a perpetual growth model. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say we had true equity in the world. And if we look at the the wealthiest nation over the last hundred years, you know, it's it's far and away the, the United States. And, you know, on a overall societal level, the, the United States has been the world leader in society and it's been the world leader in terms of its um you know gdp overall and its gdp per capita yes there are countries that are wealthier but you know you know you know what i'm saying Mm. the u.s is the wealthiest country slash empire in history and if everyone in the world lived like an american we'd need several planets to sustain it (laughs) so we, we know that we can't keep going the way we're going and I don't think we can always rely on technological advance either to to solve our problems. Mm. While I think that we have amazing people out there doing amazing things and we'll probably, I hope, be able to surmount a lot of the challenges we have, particularly our ecological challenges, we can't always take it as a given that there's going to be smart people who are going to come up with solutions that allow us to continue to keep on this perpetual growth model. I think there has to be a point at which we sort of say, well, maybe it's not important for companies to be growing ad infinitum. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not important for economies to be growing ad infinitum. You know, maybe it's not a good thing for our bodies to be growing ad infinitum. So can I just touch on a couple of things which you brought up? The first one was the lack of attention given to mental health and diet. And, you know, I spoke to Professor Julia Rutledge on a previous um, episode about the importance of nutrients for the brain and mental health and of course, her experience in MIQ and, and being over in the UK when people were coming out of lockdown and people were really hypervigilant. And, you know, she is one of the world experts in uh, diet and mental health. Yet when she had a couple of minutes with the Prime Minister and she mentioned to her, because there was a, I think there were uh, public submissions to kind of where to next with the mental health strategy in New Zealand. And this may have been in 2019, I believe. And she, had uh, the Prime Minister's ear and said, hey, how about X, Y, Z, you know, with regards to nutrition and the importance and why not focus, you know, what needs to be done to sort of get some strategy around that. And the Prime Minister was like, oh, yeah, no, just put your policy in, put your submission in, not brushed it off, but certainly didn't kind of go, huh, that's something to consider. Potentially it wasn't the right forum or, you know, absolutely. But there has been nothing, um, so you know, a very uh, a lot of time was taken to put in submissions to the mental health strategy around nutrition, and um, and its ability to sort of um, manage, prevent, 
and play a part in the treatment of mental health conditions, yet absolutely nothing was taken up with that strategy. So it's the direction, it's a very clear sort of message from the powers that be that it's not as not nearly as important as putting money into counselling and, and treatment options for anxiety and depression. And of course that stuff is important, but the real base of improving health just did not seem to be a priority at all. No, no, I, I don't think it ever has been. Um, uh, I, I can't see that changing in the current environment either because, again, there's there's no appetite from any party that I can see. And I'm, I'm fairly nonpartisan, but, you know, people mm. who know me will know that I probably lean left quite heavily. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I'm not, you know, a right-winger criticising the government. I just think that there has been a failure of public health for a long time. Uh, and I I don't necessarily think it's nefarious either. You know, I think there are well-meaning people. There are people that we would say even disagree with in the nutrition space who are still firmly convinced that their opinion's right. And that's mm. fine because, you know, we're not going to be right on, on everything that we say and neither are they. But I think that the biggest challenge is that there's not a systematic approach to the the problems we have mm. you know there's not there's no there doesn't seem to be a lot of synthesis we're talking often about things in in smaller and smaller frames so we have a health system which is distinct from our view of our economy you know the mm. only sort of interplay there is that the economy should fund our health system mm-hmm. we don't see those two structures as being intertwined but of course they are within the health system we tend to focus on specific things you know we focus on mental health or we focus on system-based health and then within that you know going down to particular disorders and things of course we need to do that but you know we, we always need to the further we go down the rabbit hole we also need to spend as much time I think taking a step back and looking at how the total environment that we live in and all of the structures we have interplay to provide an environment that's conducive to health. And Mm. I I think most of us would agree that the modern environment is not really that conducive to health in any sense, whether it be mental or physical health. So how do we approach that? I'm not 100% sure, but I think there are certain things that, that need to be discussed. You know, particularly what our ultimate outcome is, is... Mm. perpetual progress and perpetual growth the way to go uh, I would say no but people would disagree with that but these are the discussions that need to be had um, I think we also need to evaluate to some degree and this is you know a lot of what I've been reading recently is related to this I think we need to be looking pragmatically at the past to see perhaps what we can draw through to the present that will help us to be living better healthier happier now Mm. and what kind of things cliff are you you know what's really interesting you in this space well i've been playing with ideas for a long long time you know around how we can live better Mm. and obviously looking back at, at how we've evolved and how our bodies have evolved how we've co co evolved with our environment i think those are all important parts of it But on a sociological level, I've often defaulted to reading, you know, things by Steven Pinker and others, which 
sort of have the hypothesis that we live in the safest, most comfortable time in history. Yeah. Now, I think you could make a very strong argument for that, but only, I believe, in the context of history in the, the normal way we perceive history. So history yeah. as, con- as compared to prehistory. So if, for example, we look at the last 10,000 years, which is what we'd really consider to be history, you could make a very strong claim that we live in the safest, most comfortable time. Mm. Great, fantastic. Well, what happens if we evaluate the 290,000 years before that or the 2 mm. million or so years before that if we're including our um, you know, immediate sort of precedents and, and cohabitators, the other hominins? We'd probably say, well, we actually live nowadays less healthy and less happy than people did in those, uh, you know, foraging, hunter-gathering type societies. And I recently read a book by Chris Ryan called Civilized to Death, and he summarized these concepts, I believe, incredibly well, and really drew that contrast between this idea, it's almost that Hobbesian sort of idea, that before civilization, we lived a brutish existence. You know, it was, I can't remember mm. the exact quote, but it's, you know, short, brutal, but really that's not the case. As, yeah. as you know, we, we actually lived fairly, fairly good lifespans if you exclude childhood mortality. So if mm-hmm. people lived past early childhood, they typically lived until they're about 60 or 70 years old, which is not dissimilar yeah. to what we live now, but they mm-hmm. were typically in, in more robust health. They mm-hmm. lived uh, with relative abundance in the environment. Yeah. Um, and there were other key sociological things which I wasn't really aware of that I think we need to evaluate, not with the idea that we become regressionistic. We, we can't suddenly all become hunter-gatherers. Mm. It's not going to work, right? But maybe there are some key tenets of the way that those societies worked that we can try and pull into the modern era to reframe how we live so that we can be happier, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I um, spoke to Herman Ponser uh, about his research with the Hadza tribe in, right. in light of a different topic, so in light of metabolism and how it does or doesn't change over time. Yep. And, of course, part of the hunter-gatherer tribes, as I know that you will know, Cliff, is that you know they live as not just within their sort of nuclear family as we might have known it, but you know the whole tribe pulls together to help other people and it's just this expected part of the of living is that you know it's you know you don't necessarily have to ask for something it's expected that you will give something to other people who aren't necessarily your daughter or your son or your wife uh it's that in order to be effective as a whole tribe everyone looks after each other and that's this really important part of it so that's something which we don't necessarily have in today's sort of society or culture, I think. And if I can just touch on what you civilised to death, that whole idea of of relying on technology to make us happy and healthy, whereby it what, what I feel technology almost does is widens that gap between the haves and the have-nots. And, and by have-not, I mean people who are working 12 or 14-hour shifts, working double jobs. They might have a roof over their head, but there's no real financial stability to provide for them what um, is required to be happy in today's society and be healthy in today's society. Whereas that financial security 
wasn't a necessary sort of factor of of being healthy and happy you know in our history I suppose exactly I mean there was very little distinction between work and play Mm. because you did you did what you did and interestingly one of the things I found really interesting was that if people chose to opt out like let's say in a lot of the cultures that have been studied, let's say you decide, oh, I'm not going to go out on the hunt today. There was no punitive aspect to the society in terms of, you know, if you're not going to hunt, well, you're not going to get fed. Well, that, that wasn't the case. Mm. Mm. If you didn't go out and hunt, that's okay. There are people going to go out and hunt and they're going to bring home the food and everyone's going to eat it. And I, I don't know, I can't remember who said it, but I remember one of the quotes from the book was a a tribesperson from somewhere, I can't remember where, was asked about where they store excess food. Mm. And obviously that's not a feature of foragers. They don't store. He said the best place to store extra food is in my neighbor's stomach. You know, obviously that, I don't believe that there was just generosity for generosity's sake. It's Mm. obviously there are benefits to that. You feed the, the neighbor and then next time you don't have enough food, they're feeding you, you know, and we don't really have that nowadays. It's interesting. I was still, I've been talking to some parents lately because obviously I'm a new parent and um, I'm obviously really interested in how to raise a, a good human now. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really strikes me is we have a massive distinction between children and adults. And we tell children to do certain things like, oh, you know, share your, your stuff. You know, you've got to be generous. You've got to be kind. You've got to share. But we don't expect that of adults. In fact, we don't just not expect it. It's almost proscribed. We don't really, it's not even really tolerated for that to be the case for adults. Adults are expected to be competitive and accumulative. You know, Mm -hmm. put it this way, you know, you, you see in kindy, a kid goes up and takes another kid's thing. A lot of times, the, the advice would be, oh, well, you've got to learn to share. Imagine if I came over to your house and, and took your stereo. <laughs> I'm not saying that's yeah. a good thing to do, but what would be the response? It would <gasps> never be, well, maybe you should share it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, not only that, it's not, it's um, people who potentially might need something are not very forthcoming in asking because they don't want to be seen as being needy or requiring, you know, and this is not everyone I know, but I certainly know people who are like, who are too proud to get what help is actually out there because of that environment, because you're expected to be able to provide for yourself, provide for your family. And if you don't, it's some failing on your part and it's not looked at as some sort of failing in society's sort of part. Exactly. And, you know, I think, that plays into a concept that you alluded to before, which is that there are a lot of people out there who are working very hard and still not mm. really making ends meet. That points very clearly to the myth of the sort of libertarian ideal that you simply work hard and you'll succeed. Yeah. You know, the idea that, and I see it all the time in threads, uh, you know, if you don't want that job, get a different one. Well, yep. that doesn't make sense because if everyone did that, if everyone worked, you know, hard according to that fallacious model and achieved different jobs or climbed up the ladder, 
there would be no one doing, you know, the jobs that we see as being unpalatable. Mm-hmm. And that that's not necessarily, in my opinion, at least, that's not fair. I think people should yeah. be remunerated well, mm-hmm. irrespective of what job they have, because it all contributes to society. And sure, there are people who are going to be extraordinary who I think should be remunerated more, but maybe it should be a little bit more level. And I certainly am a strong believer in things like a living wage. Yeah. I think, you know, it just, and a lot of people say, well, that will affect businesses, it'll affect the economy. But that, I mean, that's secondary to a society in which people are healthier and happier, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we would so never, wage- in our businesses, we would never pay anyone less than a living wage. That's the absolute yeah. bare minimum. Even if you're, you know, straight out of high school, whatever, you get paid mm. a living wage and more. We also mm-hmm. have a policy where um, we will never do a wage freeze so people earn more each year because if they're not, they're going backwards because of inflation. Yeah. And um, any, like my income, for example, is capped according to our lowest paid worker. Yeah. I, it doesn't mean I earn the same as our lowest, lowest paid worker, but it's a multiple of. And if I want to pay myself more, I also need to pay everyone else in the company more. Yeah, are there any um are there any countries that have that policy, Cliff? Of capping? Yeah, and of of the living wage and, you know, and and I'm obviously showing my ignorance, which I am completely ignorant, so there you go. I don't believe there are. I think that the closest we're sort of getting is that in some not countries, but in some provinces within countries, like I think they they trialed it in um it might have been Saskatchewan in Canada, it might have been a different country uh, not different city, I'm not sure. Uh, and I think there's also been some trials in Scandinavia. They've uh, trialed universal basic incomes, mm. which I'm also a fan of. I think they're a good idea. Um, but in terms of living wage, I don't believe, yeah, I don't believe that there are any countries that have instituted that per se. And there's certainly none that I know of that have instituted a sort of ratio cap on um, mm. executive income. The, the, and again, these all sound like very socialist ideas, and I apologize to anyone who is as opposed to them. Um, but I, I consider myself actually quite libertarian. I mm. believe that we do work for reward and we should be rewarded appropriately for our work. But I only believe that can happen in a way that's conducive to good societal outcomes if we actually have a system that allows for people across the board to, to be as healthy and happy as they can be. Now, when yeah. I talk about that ratio and capping stuff, really mm-hmm. all we're looking to do or all I'm looking to do within that sort of idea is to not have the runaway executive and CEO salaries that we've seen over the last, say, 50 years. Because if we yeah. go back to the 1960s, I think the average CEO earned about 16 times or less more than the average worker. Whereas now in the US, that's about 300 times. Jeepers. Now that makes no sense because, you know, you could say that in my businesses, I'm the key driver of the business. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I started it. I'm an entrepreneur. I believe that I should be remunerated well. However, there's no way that I would work 300 times harder than my team because my team are awesome and they work really hard. Yeah, you know, yeah. and there's no yeah. way that I'm 300 times smarter than them because they're all really freaking smart. And so it (laughs) it makes no sense that I should be paid, you know, 300 times more than someone else. 
Yeah. And and I do you know what I think I think about that and I think about um you know Lotto how the powerball sort of like how it accrues over weeks of not being won so then by the time you get to 10 weeks powerball hasn't been won we might have what 20 million dollars or something I'm not quite sure how it works but and then one person wins it who needs 20 million dollars like that is a lot of money and I and I was listening to a podcast the other day that that where someone said, and I don't know if the statistic is correct or not, but you know, within five or t- five years of winning, uh, like the lottery, ninety-five percent of people are almost back to where they started in terms yep. of um, their financial wealth. But also, you know, you're not going to get a gazillion times happier because you win twenty million dollars either. So, you know, even the idea that buying a lottery ticket to to be able to win this obscene amount of money is something that we should all be buying into because we want to be obscenely rich like that in itself I think is a bit of an issue I agree and you know I think we know pretty clearly from the research that the amount obviously happiness increases as we become more financially secure but Mm. past the point and I think it's going up a little bit now but it's around sort of 70 to 100 thousand dollars a year there's really no difference above that uh, as as to your happiness so you know while i'm not necessarily saying that everyone should earn 100 grand a year necessarily what i am saying is that we need to consider the evidence when we're looking at social policy because i think i think our the basis of what we do the basis of how we structure things should be based on a eudemonistic philosophy by eudemonism Mm. i mean that there is virtue and happiness and so we can use happiness as a razor. What promotes the greatest happiness? Yes. So from a health system, we want people to be healthy. We want them to be immunologically resilient. We want them to be mm-hmm. metabolically well-ordered, you know, because that's going to promote the greatest happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of financial security, we need to have people earning living wages and having enough to, to not just get by, but to have at least a little bit extra and hopefully yep. to get closer to that sort of eudemonistic threshold. Yeah. Over and above that thing, it's not really that important how much you accumulate. There are far mm. more important things in terms of both what drives us and what fulfills our, you know, our own personal happiness. And really that comes down to purpose and meaning, passion, purpose, meaning in life. Mm. And I think that is why a lot of people, when they win a lot of money, they spend it all. Because they're trying to find some meaning. They're trying to find it through extrinsic things. You know, so many people want to win lotto so they don't need to work. But that whole idea is based on the, it's based on the structure that we've created where work is anathema to life. Mm. Work is in contrast to life, you know. And so people don't want to do it because they don't like what they do. But if you didn't have to work, what would you do? You know, and a lot of people think they would just want to sit around and do nothing, but that doesn't make you happy. That's just a way to reset sometimes. Now, here's an interesting idea. Imagine if we all did have enough to serve our survival needs. Mm -hmm. You've got enough money, so you you can pay your rent, you can buy food, all that kind of stuff. If you're out of work, what would you do? I think that most people would end up doing interesting things. Yeah, interesting. Like there are going to be some people who just drop out and do nothing, but they're in society anyway. And I don't necessarily think you're going to see more of them. What I think is that you might see people thinking about things a bit more, creating interesting Mm -hmm. solutions to problems, maybe creating some art, you know, doing whatever. 
but I don't think that people in you know intrinsically fall towards not having passion and meaning in their lives. That's something that's instilled in us because of the way that we live in the society. Well, I feel like um, to add to that as well is that when when you are in a job that does it that affords you barely a minimum wage to be able to support your family, you've got no bandwidth to think about pleasure or passion or purpose or meaning. You you know all of that is sort of that's a luxury that just isn't afforded, right? And and so if you talk. And if I'm thinking about like the what it would cost to have a society like this, so you've got so you're paying everyone a universal or a living wage, so they can actually afford to live in a healthy way, that they've got access to things that enable them to be healthy. And yes, that might cost a lot of money initially, but in the long run, it's going to cost from a political, from a country perspective, a lot less because you'll be paying a lot less in terms of uh, public health system and what it costs to keep people healthy in the long run as well. So it's sort of the immediate cost might appear to be greater, yet long term, it's going to end up being better with regards to sort of overall debt levels for New Zealand or the country or whatever. Exactly. And, you know, that, that speaks to your point from early on that we, we don't have that longer term vision mm. because it's more about keeping the ship balanced now but having enough sort of short-term incentives for people to vote for you yeah. in the now yeah yeah now i think that's very limited too because when we look at what drives people have you ever looked into this there's a really good book called drive in which he i can't remember who wrote it i think it was um, daniel pink he summarizes a lot of the research on what motivates people. Mm. And so much of what we do in the modern world is contrary to optimal motivation. Yeah. You know, we, we take on salespeople and we pay them uh, a commission based on the sales they make. Now, the, the research is pretty clear that that drives increased motivation for a short time, but actually inhibits motivation in the long term. In the same way that when we have the carrot or the stick as a motivator, that motivates us in the short term. But in the long term, it demotivates us because it's always an if this, then that proposition, you know. Is it that instant gratification thereafter? If you are always looking for that instant gratification and that pleasure, then rather than the long term and playing the long game, is that the thing which wears you out and, and grounds you down? It's a big part of it. It's also that it's a big separation between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Yeah. So when we have if this, then that, it's, it's always extrinsic. And there's been really interesting studies done on it. For example, when, when people are given a puzzle and they're either just given the puzzle or they're given the puzzle and they're told that they will get a monetary reward for completing it, people mm-hmm. are more likely to complete it and more effectively complete the puzzle when they're not given a monetary reward. Huh. Because the completion and the intrinsic motivation of of having achieved is greater than the in- extrinsic motivation of getting cash. And punitive motivators don't really work that well either. So there was mm. a famous study done, I think it was by, I'm not sure whether it was by Dan Ariely or perhaps Kahneman and his colleague, the name escapes me, I'll, I'll remember it in a, in a second, but they did a, a study in Israel, I think, and I'll probably get some of the nuances of it wrong, but you'll, you'll pick up the, the gist. Uh, they basically looked at a, a preschool and the preschool was having problems with parents turning up late. 
Mm. And so the teachers were having to stay later and all that kind of stuff. And so they put in place a fine. If you're late, you'll get a fine. Guess what happened? More people turned up late. Yeah. (laughs) More people turned up late because (laughs) it shifted it out of a social norm where the pressure is, I'm trying to get there to pick up my kid and I feel bad because the teachers are staying late and all that kind of stuff. And the other parents are going to look at me like I'm a bit of a dick. So there's that social pressure versus, well, I can always just pay the fine if I'm late. Becomes transactional, right? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the problems we have with a lot of the way we enforce laws, I think. Because Mm. we, we see a high prevalence of wealthier people speeding, for example. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because they can afford the fines. Yeah. Now, when um, now I'm not saying that we shouldn't have uh, punishments necessarily. I, I'm not really sure about it. But we, we need to sort of look at the nuances because sometimes with extreme punitive measures for things like that, we can on a societal level see far worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. For example, in the States, most of the people imprisoned or the highest proportion of people imprisoned are for fairly minor infractions. Now, the reason they end up in prison is because you get things like you might get a fine for speeding. You don't pay it. And then because you're working in a, you know, you're working three jobs and you didn't get the letter or you didn't turn up to court or whatever, you then get a charge against you and the cops come and pick you up and chuck you in jail. Right. Mm-hmm. So because of that sort of punitive side of things, which then escalates, we see really poor outcomes for society overall because you get people and people shouldn't be in prison for silly things like that. Now, the advantage aspect comes into it because if you're a wealthier person, you just pay the fine. Or if it gets yeah. to the point where you go to, you know, you've got to go to court, you'll get a high powered lawyer and there's no way you're going to go to jail. And so it becomes very uneven in the way that we, we treat people as well. So not only does it not really work as a motivator? It doesn't really work on a societal level, but we often, we segment things down so much. You know, I know I'm going all over the board here, but think about what happened when they privatized buses in Auckland. Mm-hmm. They cut a whole bunch of routes because they were looking for efficiency. Mm-hmm. Now, I can see why you do that. When you've got one company and you're trying to drive profit, you're going to cut inefficient routes. Yeah. The question would be, though, how does that affect Auckland? How does that affect New Zealand overall? Because then you've got a whole bunch of people who can't get to work and all this kind of stuff. So maybe yeah. it actually decreases efficiency across the board because on a micro level, we're trying to increase efficiencies, mm, mm. which is what you were saying about, you know, you improve people's health and you have a, a better playing field. You know, maybe yeah. we're not going to see the impact today, but we'll have probably way better outcomes 5, 10, 20 years down the track. Mm, mm, totally. Now, Cliff, you mentioned um, earlier civilised to death. Chris Ryan, is that the author? Yeah, Chris Ryan. He's a sociologist. No, he's an anthropologist. Yeah. Were there any solutions? Were there any things that he raised that we haven't yet discussed, which he sort of saw as possible ideas to consider like because people often think about this idea of oh well you, you know cliff's talking about going back ten thousand years i know you said that's not how it was yeah. like, what can we take in but how did chris ryan's position where to with his information he he didn't and that that was a really interesting thing i think by by design he didn't really try and offer solutions mm. he just posited that this this is what we kind of know from from the research 
But that brings up an interesting point because I, I, I want to get him, I haven't really been active podcasting lately, but I want to get him on my podcast and have a good chat with him about what he thinks we can actually draw from it and how yeah. he thinks we could potentially have some leads from that. You know, what, what sort of solutions can we draw um, to, to try and implement now? Like what can we functionally do? But mm. as I was listening to it, I thought there, there's got to be some gems in here. So I went back and listened to it again because I listened to it as an audiobook, mm. And there were what I, what I considered to be a couple of key key tenets that were pretty much universal amongst foraging societies. And they were, um, number one, generosity. Mm. Now, I know these are going to sound a bit vacuous, but I don't believe they are because if whenever we have things that we consider part of our ethos and values, and especially when we write them down, you know, maybe put them on your wall, put them on your fridge, whatever, they do start to get into your mind. 100% agree. And so when, yeah. you know, after I, after I listened to it, I was um, down at the warehouse, this is before pre-lockdown, and uh, there was a guy outside asking for some money. And I often give money to people, but I often don't as well. It really depends on my whim at the time. I consider myself a pretty generous person. But with that idea of almost unbounded generosity in my mind, I just thought, mm. oh, well, what, whatever I've got in my pocket, I'm going to give him. Mm. So I think I had like 10 bucks in my pocket or something. I gave it to him. And I didn't, I purposely didn't let myself think about, well, what is he going to do with it? You know, the yeah. typical sorts of things that people think, oh, he's probably going to spend it on booze or whatever. Yeah. Because that's when we make it transactional. And I think that's our big problem. We think that if mm. I give this thing to you, then I need to either have something in return or you need to act in a particular way because of it. Mm -hmm. But that's not really generosity. Generosity is just giving and, uh, and, and trusting in the person that they will do what they need to do in this moment. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's yeah. buying a pack of cigarettes or not, hey, who am I to judge? You know, one of the yeah. things that I often talk with people about is they'll say, oh, well, you know, if this particular poor person didn't smoke, they'd save X amount per week. It's like, yeah, that's true. And I'm sure they know that as well. But just consider yeah. that if you were working two jobs and you were still not really making enough to make ends meet and you didn't really have the opportunity to do all these other things that you wanted to do in life, you might smoke as well because it might be the one thing you've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like what you say about you you, know, you don't make it transactional. It's not like, you know, there needs to be some sort of contract that I'm going to give you this money and you better spend it on fruit and vegetables because otherwise yeah, exactly. you've just gone and wasted that money, you know. And, and I feel like often things in life are predicated on that, not really what's in it for me, but how are you going to – Yeah use it to the to to the best of how I feel you should do it. You know, we put our own values on people, I think. Exactly. And I try and take that into if I give a gift to someone, I I never expect a thank you. And mm. the the reason is that some I mean, it's not important. I, I feel good for having given something to somebody. But I also know in the back of my mind that sometimes I've been given things and I've really appreciated it and I love that person and I've forgotten to say thank you. It didn't mean that I didn't care. I just forgot. So I'm going to give people a lot of rope because why not? It's better just to give without the expectation of reward. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the other thing is we, we know as well, again, evidence basis, right? We know that when we give, we feel better than having had received yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that in itself is the reward. But 
There were other a couple of other key tenets that I took out of it as well. Uh, number two, after generosity, is e- fierce egalitarianism. And I really like mm-hmm. the way that he framed it as fierce egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. It's not just sort of leveling the playing field. It's just that there were, there were very few hierarchies. You know, with a few odd exceptions, there were not really a lot of hierarchies and there was not a lot of distinction at all between men, women, um, people who chose to have different gender identities, sexual proclivities, whatever. It, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's something that if, if we consider that that is our nature, because what we've been doing recently is a blip on the radar. Mm. If we consider that at least 290,000 years we lived a particular way and we were pretty happy and healthy doing it, and for Mm. a very short period recently we haven't, and that's Mm -hmm. when we've had things like sexism, um, you know, and and racism and all those types of things that have come into it, that's not our nature. Yeah. Our nature is not to be competitive and hierarchical and to discriminate against people because of stuff that doesn't affect us. You know, it's interesting as well, because it comes a little bit back to what you value, because what is valued, for example, in our society is education. It's, you know, earning X amount of money. It's having the, it's things like status type symbols. And when you think when, when you were talking about, you know, what is this period of time that we're in now is a very short space of time compared to how long we've, you know, in history, how long we've been here. I think about education in that sense as well, because it's been, you know, I, I must've read it somewhere in a book about how, in fact, being educated, sitting in a classroom, learning how to read and write and learning particular things is a very modern concept. And so we can't expect that everyone is going to suit that particular uh, way of doing things. And I know we don't anymore, you know, we really, you know, it's much more, um, people are much more, accepting of and trying to find different ways for people who don't suit that sort of classroom environment but that that is you know education is uh, education in that academic sense is definitely something that is valued very highly whereas you know how can we expect that everyone is going to suit that model because as far as history goes that's you know a very small sliver of time with which we've had that in uh, as part of our lifestyle exactly and you know while while things probably are quite a bit better, I still think we we fall into the trap of pathologizing people for things that aren't necessarily pathologies. Mm. Now, I don't want to alienate anyone here, but you know, take for example ADHD. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not a real thing, but there is strong evidence that where kids are allowed to have more freedom in their play and more freedom in their learning where they're able to get outside and get amongst green spaces, where they're nutrient replete, you know, which is obviously where Julia's work has really been focused, and that's now being replicated um, Mm -hmm. by other researchers, so we can say it's pretty strong now. Um, The effects of it in a negative way are really mitigated, and in, in some respects we could say it ends up being positive if there are outlets for that particular type of, you know, personality or psychoneurophysiological state Mm. so you know i I do think that the idea of neurodiversity is a good one because it starts to take Mm. it out of that pathology place and it begins to recognize that everyone's different people learn differently Mm. people have different skill sets 
and we shouldn't just be lauding, you know, the big three anymore. It's not about lawyers, accountants, and doctors being the pinnacle of society. Mm, mm. Equally valuable, but you know, I love that ad that's on at the moment about tradies. I don't really watch TV, but because of the COVID updates and things, we've been watching a little bit of TV recently, and I've seen that ad about, um, you know, the, the the father who's becomes proud of his son who's a tradie. And it's obviously a play on, you know, people coming out um, as yeah. gay and whatnot. But yeah, I, I just think it's funny because a, a, a tradesperson has traditionally been, been kind of looked down on mm-hmm. in comparison to a doctor or a lawyer or an academic. And yeah. that, that's always been very uncomfortable for me because I come from a long line of tradies, tradies. Uh, and, you know, workers, people, you know, hard men who, who did hard jobs. And I'm the first one to, my sister was actually the first in our family to ever go to university. My dad was the first in his family to ever get school C. Um, mm-hmm. And I was the first to achieve a doctorate. So we're very recent entrants into that sort of sphere. Um, but I don't consider that the fact that I have a doctorate in nutrition to make me better than a dude who's working as a plumber or a sparky or a builder. Because mm. mm. I couldn't do that. I don't have the mm. skill set, you know. Um, and mm. that that's just about appreciating people for, for what they do. And it's very recent, isn't it? That whole idea that you making in, in one sense, I know I remember this maybe 10 years ago, the whole idea was to make university accessible to everyone. You know, everyone has the opportunity to go and learn and, and get a degree and be the lawyer, be the doctor, be the accountant. Whereas without that, it, and it almost was dismissive of the people who actually, if you go to Polytech and you do an apprenticeship and you get a trade, you're actually going to be well, much better set up than the 500 people that are doing that commerce degree this year to then get them to sort of that next level. And it's, you know, I working at AUT for a long period of time, seeing people come in to our sport degree. And I just was thinking, man, we are setting these kids up to fail by, yeah. you know, like in, in one sense, people were like, but we're increasing accessibility to this. You know, we're, this is equality, but actually you're placing a high level of value on a university degree that at the end of the day is not going to get anyone any really that further along and possibly sort of setting them up to fail because then what, you know, there aren't 500 jobs out there for people who graduate with a commerce degree to then go in and you know start making a career of it whereas there's such a need for plumbers and electricians and mechanics and things like that exactly and so i think that that is you know that that does shift with the times a little bit obviously i think tradies are um pretty well paid at the moment and that that's good yeah 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 and they're probably interestingly in the modern world they're probably a little bit more resistant at least in the short term to some of the shifts that are occurring in the professions, you know, mm. uh, there are a lot of now AI and template driven systems that are replacing a lot of the basic functions of, of lawyers now. Mm. And so we're probably over time going to see fewer lawyers because a lot of it, especially the the basic contractual things and the sort of conveyancing side, that's all just going to be automated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that that's going to affect a lot of industries, which is also why... I know for a fact that there are a lot of people in government now who are working towards 
I, you know, I hope it works out, but they're working towards protecting us from underemployment in the future. Because although it's been a specter for a long time, it hasn't really eventuated that automation has drastically reduced the workforce. But hey, it probably will. Mm, mm. And so there were there were two other key points. Um, one was sort of the greater community thing that you talked about, which is outside of just our nuclear family, which is a fairly recent thing. Mm. Um, so it's sort of having that community that is broader than that. Mm. But those communities were also quite small. So it was sort of the the combination of having a larger community group than we probably have now, but also probably not the same extent uh, that we have our diffuse communities. Uh, you know, like you might have a thousand friends on Facebook, but you probably don't really know a lot of them all that well. Whereas if you have these tribal groups that typically limited themselves around, you know, 200 people or less, you mm. would kind of know everyone pretty well. But within that... Are you talking communes? <laughs> not really. <laughs> More so just those tribal units. But there was also a lot of autonomy within yeah. them. And the autonomy yeah. was was egalitarian again. So, yeah. for example, if, if a kid was... Um, and these are just things that I've drawn from the book, so I'm not speaking as an expert here, yeah. but these are just concepts that I found interesting. Um, if, for example, in a lot of these societies, a kid was not happy in its you know, family unit for a little while, it might go and live with its auntie, uncle, or a friend or whatever. Mm. And that was that was quite fine because it was fairly fluid within the community. But interestingly, I didn't realize this. A lot of times people would leave their tribal units and join other tribes as well. Mm. And that was fairly normal in pre-agrarian mm. societies. And so people had a lot of autonomy to do what they wanted to do and to to live where and how they wanted to live. But it all worked out because there was probably that implicit driver of community. You know, there was social support. There was all those things. And so really the last bit that he didn't really talk about too much, but is, is within our sphere, is I think there are things that, you know, we can obviously draw into the modern world from our evolution, our bioevolutionary traits that are, are critical too. You know, the, the stuff that we would talk about a lot in terms of how we sleep, the fact that we need to be moving, we need to be putting our bodies under resistance, and we, we really need to be uh, limiting screen time and eating a diet that's based on uh, mostly natural unrefined food. Cliff, what is the least natural and unrefined food that you enjoy? The least natural? Yeah. Um, Snickers bar? I, I was going to say Snickers bar, but I'd probably say a donut. Is, is more there. I mean, that's the perfect storm, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Particularly post-vaccine. Yeah. So, but <laughs> obviously, you know, if it's a little bit here and there, it doesn't really touch the sides. I did notice that that's been my big lockdown thing is yeah. for the first time in my life, my waist measurement got over half of my height. You know, waist to height is a really oh, key indicator gosh. of health. Yeah. And I was blown away because I've I've never had that before. And I'm still in good shape, you know, and I'm very fit. I, I still, you know, wrestle, do jiu-jitsu, lift, all that kind of stuff. Um so yeah, but I, with I feel Dexter like, at the moment. Well, no, it's just that um and my bloods look great. It's just that I had probably let things go a little bit with the nutrition. And yeah. so um yeah, this lockdown has been about getting that back down and I think I'm I'm pretty well there now. I'm back. To, to, to fighting fitness and back in shape. So that's good. I managed to turn the ship around before it went too far. 
fuel, but but you can still eat one of those uh, uh, defi- uh, donuts and, you know, that all forms part of your healthy lifestyle. Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, for me, I sort of have in my mind ratios. So I'll think yep. that, for example, recently I was, you know, pretty diligent about trying to, um, you know, drop a couple of percent body fat and get back in what I consider to be my best shape. And so about 5%, I guess, of my meals would be treats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and if I wasn't being that diligent, but I was still maybe trying to lean up a bit, maybe 10% of them would be. And mm-hmm. usually up to 20% of, of my meals might be, you know, more sort of convenience or treat type foods. But I figure that 80-20 mm-hmm. rule works well for most people most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Because the rest are on point, you know, getting in plenty of protein, lots of vegetables. I don't really eat a lot of carbs during the week just because I know that in my treats I'm probably going to make up for that and get a little bit in. Yeah. Um, and obviously yeah, yeah. the other good things like omega-3s and whatnot. So you cover off a, a couple of key bases and you're kind of there. It's it's not that difficult. It's it's simple, but it's not always easy for people because we are so patterned into particular ways of being and eating. Yeah, completely. I get most of my carbs from uh, craft beer probably, actually. Yeah, you do now. Yeah, I do love a good old stout, like Castle's Triple Cream. That's one of my faves. I, I love a stout and I love a dark beer, but I'm finding the the other craft beers, ales and things, I can't really drink anymore. Mm. I, it must be. It hits my guts and then the next day really hits the head. So I think there's oh. some congena sort of stuff going on, which I don't respond well to. So I'd stick to golden lagers and, um, golden lagers and stout. Oh. Oh, golden lager. Now I'm an IPA is, is the other thing which I would, you know, uh, which I enjoy more than I used to like five years ago or whatever. But uh, Cliff, that's, you know, super interesting. You know what? When I put this podcast out, people are going to go, oh, Cliff and Mickey, they're going to have this massive conversation about nutrition. Um, <laughs> and in fact, we really just sort of skirted around the edges of nutrition and talked about other things which were just probably on our mind a little bit. And you know what, though, this speaks to a lot of what we have spoken about in the past, not in this public forum, but just, you know, when we sit down and have a chat about yeah. things that are on our mind that that we have a conversation about, but there's no solution sitting there for us to be able to grab and go, right, that's what we are, you know, this is the next step, this is what we need to do. And I feel, you know, often that's what people want to hear is, yeah, you know, you talk about this stuff, but what's the solution? Yeah. There's not a solution around. There is and there isn't. Like there are these things that we need to consider, but no one at this point in time has this package to go, this is what we need to do. And therefore, and also the government isn't exactly going to go, this is, you know, yep, cool. That's what, you know, our next steps. I think the, the way we start though, is to, to try and encapsulate some of those values, you know, if, if the person feels they're congruent with them. But mm. I think to start at least having in our mind's eye, these, these values that we continue to go back to as touch points and then they become part of how we live. You know, we become to live those actions more and more. Then mm. I think over time, you know, we'll be acting congruent with that. We'll be starting to maybe vote congruently with that. And I hope that there will be, you know, some better outcomes as a result of it. Now, th- this isn't something that's new. You know, people who know mm. my, my other sort of work will know that I've been talking about this kind of stuff for, you know, 20 odd years. Uh, I remember I, I had a bit of a, um, I think it was probably 
around seven years after I got into practice, you know, people often have that a bit of a crisis around that time. Seven years of doing something, whether it's in business or whatever, you start to feel that that sort of itch to, to do something different. And uh, I got really burnt out and I needed to just get away. So I, I went away. I traveled for, for some time. I spent about nine months in South America. And that's where I started writing my first book in Buenos Aires. And it was originally supposed to be a nutrition book, but it ended up being a little book on sort of goal setting and achievement and things like that, because I couldn't get past the first chapter, which was based around, you know, how we set appropriate goals for ourselves, you know, whether they're congruent with our values and ethos. And so that grew into something else. And anyway, what that led to was a realization that I had had a real moment of burnout because I was wondering whether what I was doing in the world was the right thing. Mm. You know, I'm a nutritionist, but is that enough? Like, am I making a big enough impact? And I had the epiphany that it's all the same shit. Whether you're a nutritionist in retail, whether you're a builder, a plumber, a sports coach, whatever, really what mm. you're doing is helping people to to live better mm. and hopefully for them to then be happier. So we're sort of exercising what we do and hopefully happy in that by helping other people to be happier. So it was a really nice realization because I I came to the realization that it didn't really matter what I did. The most important thing was how I did it to try and impact people's lives positively. And I could probably have mm. done that in a, in a whole bunch of different areas. Um, obviously, through the years, I, I did a lot of work in the mind-body realm and studied that a lot. Um, you know, I have done a lot of work in that sort of more general coaching space. And so I think that even though I'm a nutritionist and a nutrition researcher, at the end of the day, the outcome for everything that I want to do is to try and help people to be happier and help set up structures in society that are going to help people to be happier, you know, be more conducive mm. to that, that state of health and happiness. That's awesome, Cliff. And I know that conversations like this that I listen to really help me look at the world and look at what I do with fresh eyes you know and and with a slightly different perspective and so hopefully this conversation for people whilst it wasn't in and around fasting or ketogenic diets or plant protein or anything like that hopefully they'll all the things that we had written down (laughs) yeah but hopefully um that'll you know that'll sort of just get people thinking a little bit differently even if it's like oh god well they banged on for 80 minutes about something i wasn't that interested in um that's fine as well because there will be (laughs) that's exactly right there are always gems you know i or at least i think so anyway and particularly from you because i love talking to you cliff because you always do kind of get me thinking on different things which you know i'm not always you know i'm pretty ignorant on a lot of this stuff um so i always really appreciate learning more actually and i always do that when we have a conversation so thank you well thanks mac i'm I'm probably pretty ignorant of it as well but i i synthesize some information and i at least try to think about how we can make the world a better place (laughs) i love it it's so good whereas in my head i'm like yeah i love thinking about that stuff but i also equally love thinking about the fact that it's wednesday and then on thursday i get to have a stout because I set these, uh, that's my 80 20 is my, uh, oh, awesome. <laughs> like when I can have a start, um, Cliff, people know where they can find you, don't they? Yep. They can find me at cliffharvey.com or, um, our nutrition and health training at the holistic performance Institute, which is holisticperformance.institute. 
that's awesome. And I will um, put links to the Chris Ryan book, the Israeli preschool study, the Daniel Pink book in our show notes, in addition to, of course, holistic performance nutrition, where people can go and get well-schooled in all things holistic health and nutrition, including female nutrition module, which I contributed to, and of course, health coaching module, which Michelle Yandel contributed to as a former uh, guest on the show. Uh, and of course, Eric Helms, I believe, did some research module for you as well and he's also a, 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 a previous guest on the show as well um, I'll put all of those links in the show notes and then next time we jump on we will in fact talk about all the other interesting fun nutrition stuff because um, they're definitely on my list of things which I want to pick your brain on as well just some other you know I want to hear your thoughts on, on a couple of these nutrition things but we'll save that for next time awesome Nick All right, team, Cliff just drops some pearls of wisdom in there, and I really hope that you enjoyed that and that it gives you maybe just another perspective. You may be aligned with a lot of the stuff that we talked about. It might be something different that you've not really thought about before, but I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. Next week on the podcast, I am really excited to bring to you the conversation that I had with Professor Donald Lehman, who is essentially a world expert in protein metabolism. So he was able to answer a lot of the questions that I had and just really deepens our understanding of protein and what I did talk about with Professor Stu Phillips. Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter where I am most active at Mickey Willardin. Or jump onto my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you will find access to that recipe portal. You can book an online consultation with me, or you can sign up to one of my fat loss plans, my ketogenic longevity plan, or any number of other offerings that I have there. That is at mickeywillardin.com, and we'll pop all of those links into the show notes. All right, team. Thanks for being here, really appreciate it and I don't take it lightly because there are a gazillion podcasts that you could listen to on a weekly basis. The fact that you're listening to Wikipedia just means so much. So until next week, you have a great one. See you later.